and this is uh, the next day, the wedding day, I had, uh, some of the guys said, well, let's go and have an after party. So I grabbed a bottle of gin from the, uh, the box behind the bar, which didn't uh, endear me to the father of the bride. But uh, nonetheless, I take off with this bottle of gin and drive back to the Marimont Inn, which is this Tudor-style uh, inn in Old Marimont, which is the second oldest uh, you know, area, posh area of Cincinnati, very old school. And uh, had way too much to drink at that point, too. So uh, God uh, protected me. I didn't know he had. Got me there, and so I'm pulling into the parking lot, and here's a double-decker uh, English bus. The red, you know, thank you, Gordon, for uh, uh, that heritage. They, they brought that over. It's just sitting there just to stand out. You know, it wasn't functional. And so I come flying in about 30 miles an hour into this parking lot, swerve to miss the bus, and, of course, I run into two parked cars. And uh, the police station is right across the street. <laughs> So some of my friends said, hey, man, it's 2 in the morning. Just get out of here. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, it's a good thing I did because the police were there in a half a minute. So um, I find myself over in the police station, and I have no identification. The reason I have no identification is that day uh, I was downtown getting my tux, hungover, uh, and on the way back to the car, I was pickpocketed. And I'm driving my dad's car. I'm driving my dad's Dodge Monaco. Now, this was the luxury Dodge of the era. My dad always had Dodges because his father had established an agency that went to his, his older brother, my uncle. And so we had to buy Dodges. Well, we have nine of us. In the family, we never had more than one car. Uh, we're Catholic family too. And uh, so uh, here I am in this police station in full tucks and tails and no ID. And I've Christ my dad's car, the first really good car he ever bought. This was the one, you remember Ricardo Montalban with those ads, the, the Corinthian leather? This car had Corinthian leather. First car with any leather we ever had, and air conditioning. And my dad let me take it to this this wedding. Um, and I'm having to call him at 2:30 in the morning and say, "Dad, um, can you verify that I'm your son and that I should be?" <laughs> uh, thankfully, he did. He let me hang there for just a few seconds, you know, and said, well, are you? <laughs> um, he's a good dad, and he he didn't uh, hold it against me. He, um, I went home, and he, you know, he stood the cost. I had no money for the repairs, and um, so that's the result of uh, Brian was saying of being the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul. Uh, but it didn't teach me that lesson yet. 
so that's how I ended up in 1972 in this cabin in out in the uh, Pacific Northwest, still thinking I was the master of my fate, captain of my soul. The only reason I didn't end up in Vietnam about the time that uh, Kevin did was, you know, the in 1970, the lottery took over the draft, and my number was high enough that I never got called. So I ended up out here, out in, in the Pacific Northwest. And some retired Assembly of God gentlemen, quite unlike me, uh, witnessed to me out there in the woods. There was a mission church, a big A-frame, and they needed someone young to come out and, and work on it. My cabin was in the woods not far away, and so God set me up, and these guys... For a week, they loved on me, Jamie. Um, they loved on me. They accepted me, and I looked awful. I mean, I, I only bathed once a week. That was when I hitchhiked into Bellingham to the Y. And uh, this was before it was the YMCA, you know. It's, uh, or if it was, I didn't know it. And uh, it was a... You know, I was a wild and woolly and full of fleas and never been curried below the knees. You know, that that's how I, how I looked. And here were these gentlemen, really, wonderful men. And I'd been witness to before, but I'd always, you know, resisted. They, they got under uh, my skin. And it was their love, their acceptance of me, their willingness really to write me into their story, to let me join their story. And that's what put me on the course to be reading the Sermon on the Mount in, in that cabin by um, kerosene light and no indoor plumbing. I chose that for what, who knows why. <laughs> and that's when I let uh, God take the pen out of my hand and become the author of my story, Brian, in 1972. Um, Dan Crute, where are you, Dan? We just discovered that that very same time, he was not 100 miles away in a similar situation, having backpacked and hitchhiked across the country. Uh, and the same Assembly of God guys wrote him into their story. And we just found out just last night uh, that our stories were at the very same moment uh, being rewritten. Isn't that wonderful? Some of the first teaching tapes that I heard were by Bob Mumford, and I can remember him talking about uh, some young men who had come to Fort Lauderdale to be discipled. And something rose up in me at that moment. There's something, there was a connection. I said... I, Inside, I felt my life and my heart was going to be intertwined with theirs. Of course, two of those men were Paul Petrie and Robert Grant. I never met them yet, but God knew I was going to meet them. Um, fast forward three years, and uh, we've, we've met uh, not only them, but uh, Frank Dawson and... Uh, the church in, in Lancaster, uh, Joseph Holbrook, Michael Cook, 
Kevin Davenport and many of you. But before I got to that point, I returned home and I returned to Jackson, a little town I had left. I didn't so much hate it, but I never intended to return, Michael. I was made for bigger things, you know. And um, so I'm back home in Jackson. Actually, the night that that I gave the the Lord the pen, so to speak, uh, he said, you're going home. That's the first time I've ever heard his voice. And uh, it was like inside I said, of course, as if it was my idea. Isn't that amazing? You couldn't have gotten me back there. You couldn't have drugged me back there with horses. But as soon as I relinquished what Oswald Chambers calls the, the right to govern our own lives, and my heart was beginning to change and becoming a new creation, then his voice made perfect sense. And, and it was almost like, well, yeah, I knew that all along. <laughs> so I come back in 1973 and uh, start a coffee house ministry. Uh, didn't know what I was doing either, but I, I didn't seem to have much choice in the matter. Uh, and the thing grew over a couple of years. Uh, it was growing. We had at one point 125 teenagers coming every Wednesday night for a Bible study. Uh, that was 10% of the entire high school student body. It was such that they... They didn't have any band practices or sports practices on Wednesday night because the kids weren't there. Uh, we had about 50 adults, and uh, we were cooking. You know, of course, in those days, you'd just sneeze and something would, would start. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't hard to do. It's a credit to me. Uh, I was just there and uh, willing. I was under orders. You know, that's where I was to go, see what God would do. And... About that time, people were saying, well, we need to, you know, we need to start a church. We need to really form a church here. You know, this is really going great, and, and you can teach. And, and uh, of course, all I was doing was, was taking Mumford tapes and Simpson tapes and regurgitating them, you know, and, and uh, uh, I was in way over my head. And so, thankfully, I sought the Lord about this. I just recently married, had no children, and of course I'm supposed to be doing marital counseling, and I'm supposed to be counseling people about raising kids and all that stuff. And I just whoa! So I, I sought God about it, and He said, uh, "Well, if you go on from here, you go on alone." That's how He talks to me. He doesn't, you know, nothing fluffy, nothing nice, <laughs> nothing, nothing long, just very simple statements. You know, He knows my soul structure. I need to get it straight. Straight on. And so I closed it down. And people didn't understand why, you know, everything's going great. But I closed her down. And I began looking for a pastor, someone to mentor me, someone to help me uh, become a man of God and, and know what it is to be a good husband and a father and to be able to help others. And... Uh, uh, I told the folks, I said, I, you know, I think if we go on, I'll end up hurting you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm just, I'm not ready. I just can't do it. And sure enough, another young guy who, who had come through and stayed and married, he decided to carry it, carry it on. And, of course, people got hurt. And he wasn't ready either. Uh, 
So it's about that time that I went to my first conference up in Lancaster. Paul was there. Frank was there. All the people that I mentioned were there. And I began, uh, I found the one to, to mentor me pastorally was Frank Dawson. And so if we fast forward from there to 1987, uh, Paul came and set in as a senior pastor and uh, we embarked on a building program um, and we built a building you know and Kevin called me about this whole purchase deal I said you may not be the I may not be the one you want to talk to because I we're selling the building that we we built uh, 25 20 years ago but then God's got different plans for each of us and so we fellowshiped all that and I've supported 100% you heard his story it's a God story and I loved it um, but that at that time God told me to think big well in my stupidity I thought think big church you know so you build as big a church as you can and then you grow the church well that isn't what he had in mind, as I learned later, even though the church did grow, it also uh, diminished later. And uh, we, you heard about that last year. But it was about that same time that I took my first trip to Israel. And I had no intention to go to Israel. You know, I, I was of the, of the nature that, you know, there is no place anymore that's holy, the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, yeah, right? Uh, so, you know, Israel had no special draw for me, but for my 40th birthday, one of the, the elders and, and pastoral counselors, Clint Connor, was doing a little tour, you know, 10 people, and uh, he was able to get me on board for a very low price and said, this is a birthday gift. So I go to Israel, great trip, but I didn't know why, why I was there, you know? It was one of those one-off things, and but God knew. God knew why. Um, so 2002, Lord wakes me up one morning and says, you're to, you're to be involved in Europe. Now, it wasn't that Paul and I hadn't fellowshiped these kinds of things and Michael and Joseph before, but there was no unction, there was no, there was no sense that when this would happen. When he spoke it, then things began to change. And before I know it, I'm back in Israel working with this Middle East program that you all have heard about. Uh, and the, so then I, I could say, now I know why I was there before. Uh, I was there during the first intifada and uh, he went back during the second intifada and the, the atmosphere that was there and it increased, uh, it called into, uh, called forward the kinds of things that we have learned to share with these young leaders, the kinds of relational principles, uh, loving one another, caring about one another, looking past the conflict, uh, it was, it's like church, 
really. Uh, we just didn't quote chapter and verse, you know. I was sharing things that Charles had shared and uh, Paul and, and many of you. And we continue to this day with the Middle East program. About that time, uh, I met Gary Henley and these guys and joined the IOM board and started attending the National Prayer Breakfast and the European Prayer Breakfast and most recently the Macedonian Prayer Breakfast, the Ukrainian Prayer Breakfast that uh, Paul referenced last night. And um, I haven't been to Russia. Paul went, but I imagine I'll get there uh, in the next little while. And uh, Ron Miller, one of our elders, uh, has had a prophetic sense that I would be in Russia. I had no prophetic sense that I'd be in Russia until Paul, who I am so connected to, uh, gets this invitation to Russia. So my point is that once we join our lives together and really begin walking together and our stories intertwine, we never know where we're going to end up, you know. Uh, and it's out of that relationship that things happen. It's in the corporeity. It's not going and fasting and praying and what our gift is. It's being in relationship and then sharing life and purpose and vision and, and uh, the plan of God working out in our lives. As I mentioned, you know, the, the last few years, our church locally had diminished in numbers. Don't know why. Um, but last year, about this time, another church came to us. It was out of a relationship I had with one of their leaders, and we began talking and have begun joining our congregations together. We're still just a small church, but we've spent this year building relationships uh, together that. Uh, they have their own history, we had ours, and we're, we're blending them together to become one church. I could have not predicted that in, in a million years, that that would happen, but it did. It is happening, and it came out of relationship. Psalm, or Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Uh, Translation, the Lord knows what he's doing. And we get to participate in his story with whomever he chooses, whenever and wherever he chooses, if we let him do the choosing. John 21, 18, um, the Lord's speaking to Peter at the Sea of Galilee just right after he's restored him to relationship, said, do you love me? Uh, three times, tend my sheep, Jamie, feed my flock, care for my sheep. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you're old and gray, Kevin, um, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Um, and then he questions uh, about John, and he says, if, 
I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. As I shared last year, fellowship precedes fellowship. But once we follow with those that he's called us to, uh, the fellowship takes over the relationship uh, has everything to do with where we end up, where we uh, choose to be. It did for Peter and it will for us. Like Gordon said yesterday, I would make the same choice again and again and again to let him do the choosing uh, because look where he's led me here with brothers like you and uh, with people I would never have known, uh, never having been changed by knowing them had I not known you all. Um, and the story is still being written. It's a never ending story. There's new chapters, new characters, uh, always coming into the story if we let him be the author. It's a cast of Millions and billions. Revelation 7, verse 9. And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. Heaven's not populated or going to be populated by a remnant. Um, no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want you all to know I, mean, I treasure our relationships among above everything else. And... Um, I feel privileged just to walk with everyone in this room and those that we don't even know yet that he's going to call uh, every tribe and tongue and nation to share in this, this journey uh, back home to the Father's house. And, um, so I, I want to encourage you, continue to let God intertwine our stories, our lives really, and then when he speaks to us, uh, we know that it's he's speaking not just to me. He's speaking to us. And he calls us together to, to go and do things that uh, we would never, ever have done with people you would have never expected to do them with. Let him do the choosing. Amen. Bless you.